2: Music Magazine
1: Podcast So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine Podcast to our thousands of listeners around the world. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor, and with me today are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound and Editorial Assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hello. So today it's turn of our November issue which is out now and it features on the cover the pianist Igor Levitt who has just recorded all of Beethoven's 32 piano sonatas and we talked to him this month exclusively about that incredible project. As usual, the issue is also packed with amazing features, news, interviews, over 100 reviews, much, much more. So, without further ado, we've got a lot to talk about and it's on with the show. been happening this month in the classical music world so we brought along just one new story each that's caught our eye um, you'll find plenty more in the November issue which as I just said is out now so come on there Freya what's been going on in the music world
0: so yes another conductor appointment I feel like it's that time of year where we have <laughs> so many new conductors so we're going to kick the story off with a little clue Uh, So that was Vaprik's two symphonic songs, Opus 20, and it was the first of those, Song of Mourning, and that was recorded by BBC National Orchestra of Wales under Christoph Matthias Muller on MDG. Uh, So the news from the BBC National Orchestra of Wales is that they have a new principal conductor, and it's the very young 29-year-old Californian conductor Ryan Bancroft. Um, He's just making the rest of us seem quite... Underachieving. (laughs) Yeah. So he will take over from Thomas Sondergaard in summer 2020, uh, and Sondergaard will move on to the Royal Scottish National Orchestra.
3: Yes, he's um, it's quite a nice story, though, behind this is that he filled in at the last minute for um, Zhang Yang in a tour. Um, it was at the end of 2018, um, this time last year, where it was a tour of Aberystwyth, Llandudno and Bangor, I seem to remember, three coastal towns. And the orchestra absolutely loved him. They thought he was brilliant, and the audience apparently, audience members came up to to the kind of BBC NOW management and said, "Make sure you take him on full time because he's brilliant." And that is what they've done.
1: Well, it's, it's generally how orchestras choose their new conductors. I mean, the uh, CBSO pretty much did it. I mean, they didn't go for one of the people who filled in, but still, you know, the sort of guest conductors, the roster that's lined up to fill in for a maestro who's departed, is a wonderful opportunity to see who clicks. Yeah, it's a good um, test. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an exciting, it's a really exciting um, uh, appointment, actually. Uh, you know, the BBC National Orchestra of Wales is a fine band. I mean, he doesn't necessarily go to the most glamorous of places, <laughs> but it is, a, a, you know, a fine band. And I think, um, you know, to get an American, young American with lots of energy, I think, will be, will be great for it. He's,
3: he's a trumpeter originally by trade. And when he was studying in Scotland, um, occasionally he would deputise for the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. You see him in the ranks there.
1: Mm. Although I say they didn't go to glamorous places. They'd go to to Patagonia a few years ago, don't they, to visit their Welsh brethren down there. And China recently as well. And China, yes, indeed. So Actually, I take all that back (laughs) in many ways. Um, So let's move on to the next story. Uh, Jeremy, what have you brought to the table? Right, well, mine's a a nice little bit of fun.
3: Um, Recently, I headed out to the Gloucestershire countryside, literally on my bike, Um, where I met the Armonico consort and Oz Clark, the famous wine writer and TV wine writer, wine guru. And BBC Music Magazine contributor. And BBC Music Magazine contributor in the past, exactly. Um, They have been cycling together 200 miles from Coventry down to Bournemouth um, on what they call the Oz and Armonico's Great Bike Adventure to raise funds to try and create choirs in schools and train up teachers to um, teach those choirs. They're aiming to create 300 school choirs. Um, and so obviously it's an ongoing thing. They're aiming to raise originally £10,000. They're very close to it. They're on about £9,500. Anyway, um, during this tour, they would stop off at pubs on the way, lots of pubs. And when they reach pubs, they would give a little performance in each pub, um, I met them in a pub in Quennington, which is in South Gloucestershire, and they do did a couple of bits of Monteverdi and then some Purcell. Have a pint. Literally a pint, not a pint of water, no energy drinks for this lot. They would have mm. beer. Proper pints. Because if you've got Oz Clark with you, you actually drink beer and wine. And then they'd head off again to the next one. When I was uh, Wobbling slightly. W- wobbling slightly. <laughs> one of them actually fell off when we were cycling. <laughs> right? Yeah, one of the bases fell off, landed <laughs> on his backside. And I joined them from Quennington. I was, we only went for about, I went for about four or five miles because I had my, my son with him, with me. So kind of we didn't go to the full thing. But they were heading off to Down Ampney actually when I was there, which is of course the birthplace of Vaughan Williams. Um, and we had a nice little chat, and yes, and they—they actually, although the the cycle ride was fun, it was over four days. The intention is very serious, is that they see the lack of um, school. Teachers, music teachers in schools and choirs, and that's what they want to promote. So why Coventry to Bournemouth? Why, why that particular route? Well, the there? Armonico Consort are based in Warwick, which is just south of Coventry, so that seemed like a good place to start. And they actually started outside the cathedral there, which is good for photos. Um, and I think it's basically because they had a friend
1: in Bournemouth who meet <laughs> them at the end <laughs> and put them up and give them lots of beer. <laughs> but and it's a decent decent route, I imagine. Lovely carved route. at it, not too hilly, not too flat. No,
3: they very very cleverly managed to avoid the worst bits of the Cotswolds. <laughs> they kind of went round the flatter bits of the Cotswolds,
1: unless there's a pub on the peak, in which case they. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Shall we? Shall we? Shall we move on to my yes, story? Yes, please. Um, I think that's probably wise, actually. So, so, uh, so this is um, an amusing story. Well, I think it's well, it's sort of amusing and, and also very serious, in in as much as um, Ianov decided to rescind plus one tickets for critics uh, coming to review their operas. Um, and are going to use those places to train up their own critics sort of create a sort of a future uh, sort of uh, I don't know, group of, of critics that can, can refresh the, the current roster of critics. So the idea there aren't enough young critics and you're know, going to train them up, um, which is fair enough. But there's been a bit of a hoo-ha on, on, on social media about critics who have uh, suddenly lost their, their social connections in the evening. Um, and 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 find themselves having to go to the opera at Eno um, on their own.
0: It's a hardship, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I don't have an awful
3: lot of sympathy for the critics. I'm sorry. Uh, I where I'm, I'm kind of I see this two ways. Where I think they do have a point is that there we ought to value the expertise of critics. Um, is that? You do see some really badly written blogs, kind of have-a-go critics on the web. And it's when you see those that you appreciate why the newspaper critics are so good. They really know their stuff. They have although, 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 didn't one,
1: although didn't one of them say that they liked the other person there because they could basically chat to them about the opera and get their opinion. So it's like, well, you're getting someone else to do your work for you. I also find I
0: pay much less attention. If I'm trying to host someone that's coming with me, I'm often... Thinking what what are they thinking of it and I'm much less in my own head than I would be if it was just How me. How very and
1: my... empathetic of you. Oh, that's <laughs> I <agree. me. laughs> but I agree
0: it was a,
3: it was a classic example of a self defeating argument. Yeah. They say oh yes no we must have friends so they can we can have their opinion. Say, well hold it you've just said you're the expert and the readers are relying on you. Yeah. So why do you need your friend then to tell you what they, what they think? It doesn't really make sense.
1: I think I think there's a wider discussion obviously to be had about the idea of Yano no choosing to, choosing their own critics to review their own shows. A bit like I suppose a restaurant training up a critic to review its food. I mean it's it's sort of um yeah. you know I don't know whether it's on sort of slightly dodgy ground but um, you know no one's done it before and I and I and I look to it with interest to see the people that it can produce I just hope that the people it produce um, will be able to write in the same sort of fantastic way that our critics do at the moment I mean and
3: do more than just one one review for ENO and then stop they've got to, we've got to see evidence that they actually
1: move on to other things but that's and... up to the current review the critics yeah. to, to encourage them I mean, there's there's a sense I think, and there can be a sense in any kind of arty world that the people guard their positions with a certain amount of sort of jealousy, and there's a reluctance to encourage people to pay it forward, as it were, to to encourage people up through the ranks, and that has to happen. Mm. You know, we try and do it through our work experience programs, um, and I think critics need to do it by. Perhaps bringing along someone mm. to the opera with them that's where the plus one would come in handy. you know use it wisely, don't just use it for your chums that's exactly bring along what thought, someone yeah. and then go over the whole process with them you know what am I looking for? what am I going
0: yeah
1: what am I going to write? How am I going to write it? How long does it take? Hmm. How much do I get paid? very little <laughs> I would have thought but but I mean I, th- I think I think it's um, instead of rescinding the plus ones, maybe they should say, look, you know, encourage young people to get excited about this.
0: Yeah, because then they could be aided by the critics themselves and have real feedback in live time as to how the critics formulating their ideas and what they think of it. It's, it reminded me a little bit that I think that's a brilliant idea and actually it's a bit like the South Bank encounter scheme where mm. musicians bring along a newcomer to the concert hall and kind of talk them through what they think of it. And actually that would, I think that would be so much more effective than just, you know, young bloggers or reviewers submitting something and then I assume they get some feedback, but actually from Proper established critics would be so much more valuable.
1: The problem is these reviews are going to be put up unedited, and I uh, think that sort yeah. of suggests that there's not going to be. Well, there will be feedback, but I think the Limited, problem is with yeah. the internet is things go out, and then there is no feedback. No, you know, with a magazine, for example, you know, we we send stuff back to writers. I mean, how mm. cruel are we? But I mean, it's important to you know <laughs> yeah. chip 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 away, you know, and get to the to the to the to the final product. Mm. Mm. However, the the bottom line. I, I, the, the
3: bleating of some critics that not having a plus one at one opera company in London is going to destroy their social life. I'm sorry, but that's, no. that tells you more about the critic's <laughs> social
1: life than it does about the it scheme. It does, it does. Right, we should move on before we get ourselves <laughs> embroiled. Um, it's time to talk about this month's mag.
2: This month's mag.
1: So don't forget our website at classical-music.com. You can read about all the latest music happenings, thousands of reviews, a good deal more. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. So if you fancy subscribing to our print edition, we have a special discount for our wonderful podcast listeners. All of you can get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25.15. You can claim the offer by visiting com slash music podcast. That's com slash music podcast. Right, time to talk about the cover feature, and here is a little clue. that was uh, the fantastic Igor Levitt with the opening bars of Beethoven's Hammer Clavier Sonata and he's talked to Rebecca Franks, our managing editor this month uh, about the whole process of recording Beethoven's 32 Pia Sonatas. and these weren't done over years these were done in a great big sort of white heat inspiration. Um, he's quite an incredible pianist, he's someone that doesn't do things by halves at all um, you remember his earlier recordings, Rozevsky People United Will Never Be Defeated and uh, the Goldberg Variations and the last three Beethoven sonatas. You know, these are big works and uh, Igor Leffert is, is someone I think that is a bit of a hero. Uh, he did the last three Beethoven sonatas at Wigmore Hall um, a couple of years ago and decided because the ticket sales were, you know, <laughs> incredible uh, that he'd do two performances. So he did one early and one late. And both were sold out. You know, this is a this is a chap who really is not afraid to scale the heights. And these Beethoven sonatas, I am excited. I have to say, one thing one of the most revealing things about the interview. I won't say too
3: much because obviously we want people to read it. But there is a, a lovely moment where. When you see some of these extraordinary pianists in the concert hall, you imagine it all comes easy to them and these physical challenges, they just kind of hair around them and that's it. And he actually admits at one point that obviously he keeps himself to himself in the concert hall. But when he's practicing, say, the hammer clavier or the Waldstein, swear words fly all over the place. <laughs> mm. And it actually, that's when the physical difficulties really do come to the fore. And it's not it's it, these these. These recordings will be hard won battles, which makes it all the more interesting.
1: Mm, yes, absolutely, and I can see him getting really engaged with younger listeners as well. He's very sort of techno savvy, mm-hmm. so you know he uses the technology in interesting ways, and he's very active on social media. You know, for better or for worse, sometimes <laughs> he's quite a political, outspoken chap. But but you know, with that comes a um, a real artistic integrity. So that's uh, it's an exciting uh, exciting feature to read. Um, so we're going to move on to Jeremy. What have you brought with, uh, with you from the magazine this month? Well,
3: no, those who know me well will, will know that I'm a bit of a, a football fan. Are you? Uh, I, am, I am indeed. Kels, I will bore anyone with the exploits of Oxford United. It seems that someone who is even more a football fan than me, and to an almost nerdy extent, was Shostakovich. and There's been a wonderful new book has been published um, called Shostakovich and Football, Escape to Freedom it's all about how in some of the darkest times of his life, he would turn to football for escapism and that you'd find him at the football terraces with his mates. And, and this is even in this kind of 1930s when he was under the kosh from Stalin, etc. And he didn't just go and watch football. He would keep minute records of every match he saw. He was a big Zenit Leningrad Fan. They weren't actually very good, if you look at the figures he stored up there. They were kind of near the bottom of the table. But he, he got in touch with the Leningrad players, invited them around to his house. Um, he, he even incorporated uh, kind of football motifs into some of his music, including our feature by Eric Levy Reckons in the last movement of the Sixth Symphony, which we're going to hear a little bit of now. <laughs> So that was Maris Janssen's actually conducting the Oslo Phil um, on EMI in the final movement of Shostakovich's Sixth Symphony. An even more appropriate conductor actually might have been Vasily Prochenko, who actually himself is a Zenit St. Petersburg fan. And of course Zenit St. Petersburg is what Zenit Leningrad used to be. But yes, it's a fascinating piece. and. There are active ways in which um, Shostakovich plainly put football into his music. There's a ballet which actually has a football scene in it. Um, But um, in this piece, we suggest that actually there might be other instances where his kind of escapism comes into his music is football escape his escapism such in that last movement.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for us music is a diversion. You know, music is is, is what well, it's our job. But for most people, it's a sort of thing that you 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 come to at the end of the day or the weekends or the mornings or whatever. But for him, you know, well for I him it almost prove,
3: well, for him it almost proved a death sentence. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so you can understand why he turned elsewhere for his his entertainment. So. Yes. Is that why you turn to Oxford United? <laughs> Oxford United brings me nothing but misery most of the well, time. Is that equivalent? Exactly. Leningrad.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Oh, that's a fantastic feature. Um, Eric is a a huge football fan, so it's full of the most wonderful insights.
3: And just to say that this whole feature was actually prompted by a wonderful new book by Dmitry Bradginsky called Shostakovich and Football Escape to Freedom. And it is published by DSCH
1: Publishing. Wonderful. So we're going to move westwards and maybe a little bit northwards, perhaps on the same sort of longitude, uh, to Scotland, Freya.
0: Yes. So this month we are looking ahead to St Andrew's Day, which is on the 30th of November, to celebrate the history of the music written about Scotland. Um, and it's a place that's really been kind of taken under the wing of many composers, most of whom actually are not even Scottish. In recent years, they have been. There's Thea Musgrave, James MacMillan, and Judith Weir have written a huge amount uh, about Scotland. But... Um, in history, it was actually taken on by a lot of Germans. Beethoven wrote arrangements of a lot of uh, Scottish folk songs. And actually, it has the landscape when you read about this. Um, it's such an evocative landscape. And it kind of, it was also so inaccessible um, to those beyond that actually it kind of created this sense of mystery. Um and in this piece we kind of explore the kind of romantic ideals of Scotland and you think about the rugged landscapes and the moors. That was kind of taken mm. on in literature as well. Um so, it's yeah.
1: a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of Scotland, isn't it? I mean, it, it, we, we forget actually in these days that we can just fly up and hire a car uh, and, and go to the islands, That, that how difficult it was mm. to get to these places. I mean, getting to uh, Staffa for Mendelssohn um, for inspiration for Fingal's Cave and the poor guy was, uh, was, was seasick and probably didn't even see it. But... Uh, You know, it was quite a feat. Mm. (laughs) Well, even even today,
3: I was actually interviewing the conductor, John Butter, the Dunedin consort, the other day. Mm. He lives just north of Glasgow, and he was saying... Even there, he actually, in terms of how long it takes to travel, he is equidistant between London and the north coast of Scotland. I suppose mm. that's true. Yes.
1: Yes, yes. I And mean, we talk about the Midlands in in the UK, but actually it's Manchester's midpoint between the north and the south of, of, of Britain. So, yes, that makes sense, really, the Glasgow is.
3: What well, is quite interesting about these kind of pieces which have been influenced by Scotland, is a lot of it is kind of west coast heavy. Mm. I guess that's because we've got those big... St- kind of that big coastline, the sort of... The Atlantic a, buffeting. The Atlantic
1: buffeting, the coast, et cetera. I think the East Coast is, is not as interesting um, as the West. I think the West has the has has the romance, doesn't it, yeah. really? And the midges. And the midges as <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> the romance and the midges, yes. Yes, it was the yin and the yang, you know. It gives one one hand, takes with the other. But uh, no, no, fascinating piece by Malcolm Hayes, who yes. actually lives up in, up in Scotland. So
0: yeah. what would you say your favourite pieces about Scotland would be?
3: Well, mine's really miserable. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a dark, dark piece. It's The Confession of Isabel Gaudi, which is all about someone who's burned for witchcraft, effectively, mm-hmm. in the kind of 17th century. But it's a, it's a fantastic piece by Macmillan. It's very, very powerful, especially when you know the story, which is mm-hmm. a tone poem, when you know the story behind it.
1: It's very, very evocative. Mm. I love um, Maxwell Davis's Orkney Wedding with yeah. Sunrise. That will be really one of my favourites as well. For <laughs> you?
0: I think it would be the same, yeah. Yeah, Maxwell Davies.
3: So, oh, so you two are much more jolly than I am. Fair enough. Yes, although he was in a theory. northern, uh, northern Englishman yeah. rather than a Scotsman,
1: but naturalised or- Orcadian.
3: With them, yeah. mm. And, of course, the Orcadians sometimes tell you they're not Scottish as well, which makes things even more
1: complex. No, when the Orkney uh, dwellers talk about the mainland, they don't talk about the mainland Scotland, they talk about mainland Orkney. I never call them the Orkneys. No. Never. It's always Orkney or the Orkney Islands. There we go. Tip from me. If you don't (laughs) want to be chucked out of Orkney, then there we go. (laughs) Right, I think we're going to move on now to, to first listen. For... So for those of you who don't know what First Listen is, it's a chance for us to bring to the table recordings that have rather caught our ears and we'd like to share with you. So... Um, uh, We'd like to tell you how you can get involved actually in sharing your musical discoveries with us and your fellow readers and listeners. Um, You can email us your choices to music at classical-music.com and uh, if you write a little bit about it, you could be in with a chance of being published on our Music to My Ears page in the magazine each month. So I'm going to kick off actually with this because this is rather fun. I've stumbled across A Te Deum by Bizet. Now, um, you know, the French in the 19th century weren't very well known of the liturgical music. I mean, Berlioz wrote a bit, Guno wrote a bit, but mostly they were into sort of grand opera, uh, organ music, uh, flute music, chamber music, but liturgical music wasn't their high points. But uh, Bizet, at the age of 20, um, won the Prix de Rome, and he went off to Rome and spent time at the Villa Medici and sketched out a Te Deum, which has been sort of influenced by all sorts of Italian composers from Palestrina uh, onwards. Um, He entered the the piece for a prize, uh, which he um, thought he was going to use for a trip to Naples. He was so confident this piece was going to win, but it didn't. So he fell flat on his face. But it's rather fun. It's in the sort of a grand 19th century French style. And I absolutely love it. So this is an extract from uh, the opening movement of the Te Deum. And it's performed by the Munich Motet Choir with the Munich Symphony Orchestra under Hans-Rudolf Zobeli. And it's on the Hensler Classic label. Listen to this. <laughs> That was an extract that was the opening from Bizet's Te Deum, uh, and that's on the Hensler Classic label. Features the Munich Motet Choir, the uh, Munich Symphony Orchestra under Hans Rudolf um Jeremy, what have you brought to the table?
3: This disc caught my eye a while back, and I was actually really surprised by it. I thought there was a danger it could be a little twee. It's called A Love Letter to Liverpool. And it's sung by Jennifer Johnston, mezzo-soprano, with Alistair Hogarth on piano for most of it. There's also um, uh, contributions from the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and Choir. And I thought it might be a selection of twee kind of arrangements of Beatles songs, The Christians, Hollies and things like that. Actually, it is a brilliantly put together song recital disc, which actually a lot of the music there is by young Liverpudlian composers. Um, it's all beautifully sung um, And it rounds off with You'll Never Walk Alone But that's the sort of showpiece At the end of this really Rather nice recital dress.
1: Yes, yes The label came came to visit us The other day And uh, I listened to some of it It is wonderful
3: It is brilliant Now the track I've chosen Is um, Jennifer Johnston she, I ought to point Jennifer Johnston Is a scouser Through and through <laughs> Um, brought up in Crosby, um, and then she's lived. She still lives in, in Liverpool today, or close to Liverpool. I think she lives in Birkenhead rather than Liverpool. Um, posho, posho. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the one of the tracks on it is by um, Stephen Hough, the pianist and composer, who himself I think was also born on the Wirral. Um, it's called "Madam and Her Madam." Now check out um, Jennifer's command of the accent here; it's rather special.
0: I worked for a woman. She wasn't mean. But she had a 12-room house to clean, had
3: to get breakfast, dinner and supper too, then take care of her children when I got
2: through. Wash, iron, and scrub, walk the dog around, it was too much, nearly broke me down. I said, Madam, can it
3: be you are trying to make a pathos out of me? so there you go that is a love letter to Liverpool oh, I love it it's so printed. great yeah. those of us who've got family up in that neck of the woods it's, it really does hit home <laughs> rather well and that's Jennifer Johnston Emetto with Alistair Hogarth and that is on the Rubicon label
1: fantastic what fun Freya come on let's top that
0: another fun one we've all picked quite fun discs this week Yeah. so I have chosen uh, the new disc from Winter Masalis and Nicola Benedetti they've teamed up and Masalis has written Nicola Benedetti a violin concerto and this Disc has that concerto as well as the fiddle dance suite on it, and she's performing with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and it's on Decca. Um, And it's not been particularly well received this disc, but I just think it's completely brilliant. Um, He kind of has he's used a hugely wide wide range of influence throughout. Um, Kind of think how Gershwin combined jazz and classical, and then add in kind of Celtic folk. Afro-American spirituals and you're kind of getting close to what (laughs) this disc has to offer Um, he's written so so well for Benedetti her tone and colour throughout is really rich and really Vibrant, um, but I think the concerto is the hero of this disc. It was originally premiered in 2015, but I think has been edited quite a lot since then because I think at the time it was criticised for length. So
1: but he's a complete he's a bit of a complete musician, as he went to Marsalis. Yeah. I remember, you know, I wish he did more classical trumpet than he mm. than he does. I mean, he, he does any actually now. I think most of his time is spent doing jazz and composing. But I, there, was a, there was a time when he was a real star uh, in the classical music fraternity. You know, he, he just can play anything. Mm. Such um, talent, absolutely incredible, and he's the coolest man I think alive. I remember going to see the uh, Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra at the Barbican, and I, I, you know, he just counted everyone in by just grunting, and it was just, <laughs> you know, the only person that could do that was Wynton Marsalis. So, uh, yeah, should we listen to this?
0: Yes, so we're going to listen to the fourth movement from the violin concerto, and it's called Hutenani. <laughs> <laughs> fabulous so that was the fourth movement from winter masalis's violin concerto performed by nicola benedetti with the philadelphia orchestra on decca
1: oh what a lot of fun um sadly that brings us to the end of this month's podcast actually Uh, our fantastic jingles were composed by Christopher Maxim. Our podcast is produced here in Bristol by Ben Uat and Jack Bateman. So it's goodbye from me, Freya and Jeremy. Goodbye. Bye. And there'll be a whole fresh new set of BBC Music Magazine team members to chat about next month's issue, the December issue. So we'll see you then. Goodbye from me.
2: The BBC Music Magazine podcast.